0: Well, amen. Like I said earlier, I'm grateful to, to be back, and I'm grateful to be able to, to, to speak this morning and to preach um, this morning. So this, this week, we are starting um, our series through Ephesians. Uh, I've been telling you all for the last uh, couple weeks, maybe over a couple months now, that uh, we're going to be going through Ephesians, and we'll be in Ephesians for uh, for a while, which would be good. It'd be a good time for us to study really hard and to spend a lot of time digging in and unpacking the the truth of God's word here in um, here in Ephesians. Um, so we're starting this series through uh, through Ephesians. I love this book. It's it is possibly one of my, my most favorite uh, um, books in, in all of Scripture, um, if if you can actually say such a thing. Um, um, because they all work together so well and, and beautifully. Uh, they paint a, a glorious picture of, of, of God's grace to us. Uh, but Ephesians is is um, such a delight. I, I remember I was doing some reading, and I, was, I, was, I came across a, a, a famous preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he said that the book of Ephesians is the most sublimest of all books, um, where it, it really distills the, the work of Philippians and Colossians, to, and it marries it together with the beauty of the theology that is seen in and, and Romans. Um, and I just, I just love that quote, and I, and I love Ephesians. It is a place that the Lord has used to do great work in, in this man's life. Um, and so I'm, I'm very thankful to be able to unpack it for you guys over the next couple years, <laughs> so or months, however long the Lord uh, shall tarry. Um, so, so if you have your Bibles, I know I said Ephesians this morning, but if, if you would, turn to your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Um, I know we're starting Ephesians, but we're actually not even going to start Ephesians until later. Um, we, need to, we need to kind of just un- unpack a little bit and do some, uh, do some work before we get there, uh, before we get to Ephesians. So, so you have absolute uh, full permission and complete permission to, to be studying Ephesians and to be reading Ephesians, and I encourage you to read Ephesians at least once a week. It's only six chapters, and if you sit down and read it, it will only take you 20 minutes. Um, for the moms, I know 20 minutes sounds like a dream, so read it in increments. Um, for most of y'all, you have more than 20 minutes every day to sit down and, and read, this, read this book. And so I encourage you to do so, to, to read it, unpack it. Uh, and if you read Ephesians once, at least once a week for, say, maybe the next 52 weeks, um, I know that sounds like a crazy undertaking, but think about that. Think about what the richness of God's Word being uh, implanted into your heart um, could take place. And uh, so I really want to encourage you to, to do that. As I'm, I'm, I'm going to be doing that myself, and I have been doing that, and, uh, so that, so that I can keep my mind and my heart focused upon what's happening um, and how unifying that is for all of us to be studying the same text, not just on Sunday morning, but something that we're we're unpacking together in our hearts and meditating in on our hearts every single day or all every single week um, together. Um, have, well, just hold your finger there at Acts 19. We'll, we'll be there in just a minute. Um, how many of y'all have seen the movie, and it's interesting, it came on the other day. I was, we were watching it in the, the, in the condo in Orlando. It, it came on. And I just had to watch it. Um, uh, the Born Identity. How many of y'all have ever seen that movie, The Born, the Born Identity? Okay, so about four people. Um, <laughs> So I'll have to explain a little bit to you, but it, it, I don't recommend movies very often. But this is a really good movie, and it's a series of three movies that came after uh, in the books. And uh, it, the Born Identity is um, uh, about this this guy who who pretty much he he is uh, the beginning of the movie starts out where he's. He's basically floating in the middle of the Mediterranean, off the coast of France, which I guess wouldn't be the middle, but off the coast of France in the Mediterranean, and he's picked up by some fishermen, and the whole premise of the movie is this guy trying to figure out what, who he is, and, and as the movie progresses, he realizes more and more about himself by the things that he, he uh, sparsely remembers when he sees something or smells something or or um, like the really cool scene where he's stranded in, I think he's in Prague and uh, uh, he's in Prague, he's sleeping on a park bench, the police come up to him and they, they try to arrest him and all of a sudden he knows like these crazy ninja skills and he completely debilitates these two police officers um, where they're unable to hurt him and he starts to realize who he is. So I don't wanna give you too much of the plot of the movie since only about four of you have seen it and encourage you to watch it, it's a great movie, it's a great series, we, we love it. Um, and, and the whole idea is for him, right? is to figure out who he is, right? He begins to figure out what his name is. His name is Jason Bourne, right? Actually, it's different. I'm not going to say that. But his name is Jason Bourne. Right? He figures that out. Well, I mean, he has absolutely no clue who he is. And people are uh, throughout the movie got to yelling at him and tell, talking to him like they know him. And he's like, I have no idea who you are. You're telling me I did these things. I mean, I, it's a great movie. You can see I'm getting excited just by watching it, right? and thinking about it. It's a great movie. And, and as throughout this movie, he's trying to figure out who he is, and you're trying to figure out who he is, right? You get sucked in. You want to try to figure out what his identity is, who he is. Now, what we need to realize about this movie, or at least the reason why I brought that up, is, and, and truthfully, what we see this guy doing, trying to figure out who he is, and what his identity is, and why he can do these crazy ninja skills and all that stuff, is, is the same idea that we have as well. Not that none of y'all have crazy ninja skills, you might. Uh, if I had to make a guess, it, the only ones I would think maybe would be Kelly would have ninja skills, um, but the rest of us probably don't. Um, he says he works. Listen, he says he works at night. Okay, so I'll just leave it there. Um, so the, here's the thing. is What we realize is, is it kind of shows us something about ourselves. And, and what it's showing about ourselves is that we're all trying to find an identity. We're all trying to find out this idea of who we are, who you are, who is Ben Roberts, who is Christina Roberts, who is this Kelly Anderson, if that's his real name, kind of idea, right? Um, and, and here's the thing, next week he probably won't be here, right? Maybe in the hospital recuperating after beating up a bunch of mob bosses or something in Savannah. Um, something like that. I could go for hours with that. So. That's good. We're at, we're constantly wanting to ask the question. We may not be asking ourselves this question, but the, by the way that we live our lives and the things that we try to cling to, we're asking ourselves the question: Who am I? What am I doing? What am I about? And and, and sometimes you might have had those moments, right? Um, and and our, yeah, in our culture, we we kind of call it the midlife crisis a little bit, or um, for some of us, maybe it's the the before the middle of our life crisis. Um, and and we've been, what am I doing? Am I really making an impact? Am I really doing what God has called me to do? Am I, am I, am I really doing anything besides drawing and go paycheck or something? I mean, these are the things that we're constantly asking. We're trying to find out who we are. And we think, when we think about this, there's so many different categories by which we find or we form an identity, right? We try to form ourselves an identity in so many different ways. Sports and hobbies. It was, it was interesting. We were out, uh, I was talking just before, uh, we met uh, this morning, and there's, there's people out there playing softball Sunday morning at you know, 9 o'clock or 9.30 in the morning, out there hitting softballs, you know, trying to find something in, in sports. Or maybe it's a team. right? Some of us probably can't, we can't play sports, so, so we, we find an identity in a team. Right? And and so so we will will brand ourselves in those teams, we'll follow those teams, we'll will learn the the players and uh, and, and all those things, or we will do it in hobbies, you know, whether it be uh, uh, whether it be golf or whether it, be, it can be music, it can be art, it could be anything, right? Fishing, hunting, all these hobbies, all these things that are put toward us that, that we want to try to excel at because we want to be known as, you know, the great hunter or the the great pool player or the great swimmer or whatever it may be that, that we are pursuing in, in our lives. There's the other categories by age, right? We separate ourselves by age. I'm part of this group because of my age. Or maybe it's gender. We see that more often these days in our culture. We're separating ourselves in these categories of gender. And there's also race, right? There's race. That's, that's even bigger now than ever, that that we try to separate ourselves by uh, by race, or maybe it's social status and job type. That's, that's, a, that's a huge one. Um, or maybe it's uh, what we see in our culture also is our sexuality. That's been one that people want to identify themselves as is in their sexuality. Another um, the one is, and, and when all those, including so many other categories, all these things lead us to decisions or lead us to, to the, the shape and how we make our decisions on where we live, who we marry or who we will date, how we date or how we will marry, how we shop and what we buy, it, it, it leads us to decisions on what kind of car we're going to drive, right? Am I going to be a person who drives a truck or am I going to be a person who drives a fast car? If you're Rick, you do both, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Are you going to do, are you, are, you know, it, it drives us to, to do so many different things, Right? Who we support and who we don't support, right? Especially now in 2016, we're in the time of election, right? Who we support, who we don't support, right? The type of, of phone that we use, the type of technology we embrace and stuff like that, um, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many things by which we identify with, We we want to cling on as our identity. And every one of us, what it realizes about every single one of us is that we're desperately wanting to identify with something or someone with something or someone. And so let's, let's not any of us discount this because every single one of us, we do not want to underestimate the power of the desire for each one of us to, to belong and to identify with something. The power of that. And this, this desire is so prevalent for us just as well as it was for those in the first century, the first century church in, in Ephesus. So now let's look at Acts chapter, Acts chapter 19. I'm going to be doing a lot of flipping back and forth because as it was a couple months ago, my Bible is still in storage. So I have to switch back and forth on my, on my iPad. So here's, here's Paul. This is the, this is the, the narrative of Paul uh, going to Ephesus and, and, and being in Ephesus uh, for, for a while. And, and this is one of the first uh, in, encounters that we have with the people in, in Ephesus. Let's look at verse 8 starting in verse 8. We're going to read this together. It says this. It says, And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning with them about the kingdom of God. So Paul went to the synagogue, right? And who, who gathers at the synagogues? Who are the types of people that gather at the synagogues? Jews, right? The Jews gather at, at the synagogues, and this is what Paul did. Every single time he went into a new city, he would go to the synagogue so he could reason with the Jews, and he can preach to the Jews, and he persuading to them about the kingdom of God and who Christ is. And every single time, it was like, it was like clockwork, verse 9 happened, right? Let's read verse 9. It says, but when some of them became stubborn and continued in unbelief speaking evil of the way, right, you see way capitalized, that that means Christianity is what we would call Christianity, evil of the way, before the congregation, he withdrew from them, and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And so what we see here, Paul saw that there would become stubborn Jews, once again, that began to, basically, they would push back against him, not just not just debate him, but they would go against them physically or they would threaten them. And what Paul realized, and this is what we need to realize too about the sovereignty of God, is that there are some individuals who have hard hearts against God. And God hardens hearts. He does. And this is it. But when you look at the other side of the verse, maybe you might have missed this point in this verse here, but we also see that some were saved. Some were following Paul. Not everybody. So Paul, with these disciples, those who were, who were in Christ, who were coming in Christ, he took with them to another place, <clears throat> to another place, to the Hall of Tyrannius. Who knows where that is, right? It's just the, maybe it's the Honey Bowen building kind of place, right? It's their version of the Honey Bowen building in Ephesus. And they got together, and what did Paul do? For two years, it says, for two years, for two years, for two years, for two years he taught them, right? So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. You're talking about an amazing work of God. An amazing work of God that in those two years of preaching and teaching in the hall of Tyranius, their honey Bowen building, all of Asia heard the word of God. Now that's mission work. That's power. That's, a, that's amazing, right? So here we go. This is, our, this is the onset of what, what, what's happening in, in Ephesus, right? All of a sudden, all of a sudden, right, the seeds of the gospel were planted. The seeds of the gospel were planted right there uh, among the Jews, right there. And then what happened? After two years of teaching and preaching, God worked, and it began to grow, and new life began to spread in such a way that all of those in Asia, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greek. Something awesome is happening in Ephesus. And that, that awesomeness, if that's a word, can only be explained by God. Amen. Not by man. Not by the amazing place of the Hall of Tyranius. Not by the talent that he draws in from Jerusalem and Antioch, but by God. That God works. Now, let's, let's continue, continue reading in verse 11. This is a great story. You're going to love it. Verse 11, it says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of God, or by the hand of Paul. God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs, does anyone carry a handkerchief anymore besides Bill? I know Bill does. You got one too? Okay, great. um, My grandparents used to have one and I, I wish I had one because they would be very useful these days. That even handkerchiefs, Bill, I don't want your handkerchief, or aprons that had touched his skin, meaning Paul's skin, were carried away to the sick and their disease left them and evil spirits came out of them. Now, that seems wackadoo. Doesn't that seem so crazy to us and so foreign that we can take a, a handkerchief from Bill's pocket, go over to East Georgia, and just start wiping people with it, and they're healed? Yeah, exactly. I, I, don't, I don't know about y'all, I don't, and I'm going to get real serious real quickly. I want that. You, I'm desperate for that kind of thing. That, that, that kind of period. do I believe God still works in these ways, by the way. I may be rebuked by the elders later for saying that. And evil spirits came out of them. God was doing a great work. Verse 13, then some, right? Here we go. Here it is. Here comes the opposition. Whenever the gospel is preached, when other people are getting healed, opposition always comes. And guess what? God is sovereign over the opposition. Here it is, verse 13. And when some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, right, who didn't have snotty Paul rags the white on people to heal, they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. How crazy is that, right? Here's the Jewish people saying something that's working with Paul. They decided to do the same thing. To invoke the Lord Jesus over the evil spirits, saying, this is what they were saying, I injure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They were using the name of Jesus and they were using Paul for their own benefit and their own gain. Verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So here we go. Now we know who who this is. Not only were they itinerant Jewish exorcists, but they were also sons of a high priest named Sceva. Verse 15, listen to this. But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? You know, that's when you know you're in trouble, right? That, that, that's when you know you're in trouble. Verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and mastered all of them. That's, um, and, and for, our, for our language today, being mastered means uh, they were owned. They were they were, they were, they were, they took a beat down from from this evil spirit, mastered them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house house naked and wounded. You know you got beat up when you left the place naked yeah. and wounded, right? Right. Uh, you, you know you were beaten hard when you when you don't even have clothes on anymore, right? They were owned. And this is all ha- happening in Ephesus, right? This is, this is what's happening in Ephesus, right? And, and I, it doesn't say if Paul was there or not, but at least you know, Luke, the writer of, of Acts, has a good account of what's happening here. He might have even seen it himself, what was really going down and watching these guys get beat up. And there's a point to this. Look at this, verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. Yeah, that, that gets around, right? Like, remember in high school when someone would get beat up? You know, even if you weren't there, you usually found out within 30 minutes, and you didn't even have texting back then, right? You generally, you generally knew within 30 minutes, if not by the next day, that you know that, that John so-and-so just got owned by Clint, someone else, right? You, you generally know, or you saw their face with a black eye or something like that, right? It became known to all the residents that the seven sons of Sceva, who were powerful guys, who were powerful guys just got owned by an evil spirit, and all the residents of Ephesus knew about it. Both the Jews and the Greek. And guess what happened? Fear fell upon them all. Fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord was extolled. That's a word we don't use too often, is extolled, but extolled means worshiped, adored, magnified. And, and Jesus was magnified out of the fear out of the fear, right? There's a, there's a great holiness and magnitude of Jesus Christ that should, that should cause us to kind of stand back a little bit and tremble maybe when we consider the majesty and magnitude of Jesus Christ. And here we have the, Him being extolled. Verse 18, also many of those who were now believers, so here we have believers, right? Who are part. So, so in verse 17 and 18, there were unbelievers there in 17, not just believers that were extolling Jesus, but unbelievers that were extolling Jesus. Think about that. Verse 18 also, many of those who were be- now believers came, confessing, divulging their practices, meaning, meaning giving them up. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts. Brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I want want to just say, real quickly, about, about this and the response of the believers, the response of what God was doing, building a church in that place. The response of these believers was in the fear of the Lord, in the fear of the holiness of God all of those secret little sins and things of idols and idolatries and practices that they were holding onto so dearly, they confessed them and they gave them up. They confessed them and they, and they, they gave them up. I, I, I love, I love this because this right here, this is a group of people that in many ways we can't, we can't really comprehend a little bit because they're not steeped in a you know, 200 years of Southern Baptist culture. They knew nothing. Listen to this. They knew nothing about being clean Baptist guy and happy Baptist woman. They knew nothing about that. They knew one thing, that when the fear of the Lord hit them and they worshiped Christ, that they came divulging and confessing and repenting. I love how basic that is and as simple as it is, came repenting and divulging. And they counted the value of all their stuff that they gave up and the books that they brought. Their books of self-help and worship of false deities and chicken soup for the mother's soul. Did Did I say that out loud? I'm sorry for all those who have those kind of books. They brought them And they just burnt them. Because they were counted as nothing in comparison to knowing Christ. Nothing. Nothing. Now they were talking magic books and things that they were divulging into. And they even gave a value, which is really interesting. Meaning they they lost something of value. They didn't just take it to the pawn shop and sell it or just try to get rid of it on Craigslist. Or Facebook. They got rid of it. They got rid of it. Let's look at verse 23. There's consequences to such things. Verse 23, about that time, there was no no little disturbance concerning the way for a a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Right? So we catchin', we, we catching what's happening here. And here's a guy who makes money, his livelihood, his wealth, his prestige, his home, his comfort, on making idols. Making stuff. And also produces. This guy is the economy. Right? If he goes down, the line of dudes go down with him. The craftsmen who make all these things. The sellers. The shopkeepers. Everything. All goes down. And he sees what's happening here in Ephesus. So check this out. The repentance was so great that the economy was tanking. That's repentance. That's repentance. We want to know why certain evils in our world exist. And I don't mean to be very blunt on this, but we, we wonder why human trafficking is is so prevalent in our culture and sex trafficking and pornography is because people are consuming it. If there was no consumers, there would be no industry. If nobody drank Coke, there would be no Coke. And repentance was in such a way that the economy tanked and they went kicking and screaming. And, And let us not think that those industries that we see in our culture as kind of being those underlying things, that they wouldn't go kicking and screaming if maybe Christians would repent of their sin and turn toward Christ and stop consuming such debauchery. Maybe we wouldn't wonder why so many movies that are made today have nudity in them. If Christians would stop consuming it, thinking that it's okay. I don't mean to get on a high horse here, but repentance has effects. Godliness, and, and not just repentance, but look at where that, word, that, that repentance came from. It came from worship. It came from worship. I, we got to roll. Here we go. Verse 23, and you see, this is uh, Demetrius speaking, and you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost all Asia in this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Right? That happened in Acts 17 in Athens. Right? This effect is, has definitely trickled down, verse 27, and there's a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, that, there it is. He doesn't want to be known as a person who makes idols, who leads people to worship false gods, disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess, Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be deposed of her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together. It's a big city now, right? This big city rushed into confusion together into the theater, dragging out Gaius and Aristarchus. I, I can kind of imagine this a little bit because of the, uh, maybe the, the riots and such that we saw in Ferguson. Think of that kind of idea taking place here. Right? They were dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go among the crowd, the disciples, they would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried, cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was a confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander motioned with his hands, wanting to make a defense fence to the crowd. But they recognized that he was a Jew. For about two hours they all cried with one voice, "Greatest is Artem- Artemis of the Ephesians. Verse 35, And when the town clerk quieted the town and said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who neither sacrilegious or blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and his craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek any further, it will be settled in the regular assembly. For we are, really, we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today. And that's being charged from the Romans. And when the Romans come in during riots, they, um, they don't ask questions. Since there's no calls that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismayed the assembly. I, I read all that because I wanted you to see that the gospel transforms and the gospel transforms communities in great ways. And it starts with us. And so instead of complaining about everyone else, it starts with starts with us and how we live and how we look and how we and where we look for our identity and where we look. The people of Ephesus before Paul came, their identity was in those idols. And when they crushed and repented of those idols, we saw much change and much repentance. And we have this same condition. We have this same condition of, of this identity crisis. We may not have silversmiths named Demetrius running around and things like that, but we have this same condition of idols in our own hearts. We have this same condition. In Christians, if you are a Christian, this, this condition of turning back and finding identity in something else, what it's doing is it causes us to continually forget who we are in Christ. And, and because we forget who we are in Christ, we attempt to fulfill that void or fill that void by, by placing our identity in virtually anything else but Christ Himself. Anything else in Christ, or, uh, anything else. I mean, you, you, can, you can name it. We, we try to put something in its place. And, and yet, even in our culture where we live, right? We, we can even say that our identity is in Jesus, that we can say that we're, we're Christians and we're a member of such and such church, and yet reality, there is real no abiding truth of the Savior in that person's life or in our life. And with little resemblance of any kind of conformity of Scripture, still enslaved to sin and mastered by many things, and look like the world and look like the evil one, but still, it's still, we have to accept that a person says that they're a Christian, then they must be a Christian. Talk about an identity crisis. Talk about an identity crisis. And so, when we have this identity crisis, we're giving it to sin constantly. Jealousy, bitterness, anger, resentment, laziness, fornication, pornography, popularity becomes an idol. Gossip becomes an idol. Materialism becomes an idol, and the list continues. And these struggles and these sins and these idols become... Cycles of doing and not doing over and over again because we never address the real root issue of our identity and where identity lies. And this problem is a crisis. We do not know who we are and we don't know whose we are. We don't remember that we are children of God. We've been redeemed through the blood of Christ for our joy and that we've been redeemed for our joy that we may serve others and glorify God. So let's dig a little bit deeper. Dig a little bit deeper. We're almost done. Let's dig a little bit deeper. We're image bearers, every one of us. Every human being on planet Earth is an image bearer, meaning we bear the image of God, believer or unbeliever. We bear the image of God. We are all created in His likeness. You can go back into Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and you can see that we are created in the image of God, and there's nothing of of all creation that that looks or bears the image as we do. So we bear this image. And in that image, in that image of God, we were created to be in God's likeness in such a way that we would reflect God and reflect God the character and nature of God. So to reflect God, to live in obedience to God, to live in the character and nature of God in our obedience is the most basic human thing you can do. There is nothing more human than to be obedient to God because that is what you were created to do from the beginning. It is what has happened in Genesis chapter 3 that is inhuman. When we sin, we give into these other identities and give into these other ideas or other idols. Is when we are not acting human, but we are acting evil. But the most basic of all humanity is to be obedient to God. Is what we were called to be, and this is why we are to exist, is to image God and to glorify God. How do we image God? by thinking like God thinks and by feeling like God feels. It's why He created us with with such deep thoughts and such deep emotions at times. He created us with these things. Those, he, the, the think God's thoughts, to agree in His truth of the scriptures, to, to feel the things that God feels, right? To hate the things that God hates, to hate sin, to hate injustice, to hate oppression, to love people deeply, to grieve sin and its effects in our own lives and in the, in the lives of others, to be quick to forgive and to rejoice in the redemption and salvation, to gather together what it is to feel to love one another sacrificially. These are all things is what it means to image God. And these are the things that reflect in our life. And these are the things that change friendships. These are the things that will change community. These are the things that will, will impact our conversations. There's a reason why the enemy attacked our first parents in the garden the way that he did. Is He did it in such a way that he attacked them by giving them an identity crisis by saying to them that that God was lying to them about who they were? By saying, did God really say that God is lying to you? That God is not telling you the truth? God is holding back from you? And if you eat of this, then you will know all good and all evil? Is that not creating an, an identity crisis? God made us in His likeness that is our true identity. But Satan and people like him and our own sinful natures now, they lie to us. They lie to us in order to, to serve our, their own plans of destruction. So here is the object Here's the object that will create for you, right? This, this thing that will make you like God. So here's this thing. So we create something that we think will fulfill us, or we go after something. And that's, what, that's all that, that Satan did. He just put up a fruit and said, eat it, and it's yours. You're good. You got it all. And we do the same things. We, 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 we gain, and we achieve, and we grab things, thinking that that's what's going to satisfy us. That's what's going to make us whole. And let me tell you, it's not just in the normal things. It can be anything that we cling to, that we find identity in. And all the while, we are ignoring and rejecting who God has made us to be in His likeness. We also see that God's created us to be worshipers. God created us to be worshipers. That like we saw in the text, they extolled Christ. Meaning that, that we're continually worshiping something. Right? Worship isn't something you just come to you're created worshiping. You're always worshiping something. You're always worshiping something. We're constantly outpouring something. We're constantly uh, showing in emotions or an affections toward something, and it never starts. It never stops. It's always there to the day we die. We're always worshiping something. So the question then has to be uh, posed to us even right now. What are we pouring ourselves into? What are we pouring ourselves into? Uh, the sports which I think is the, 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 the great idol of our culture for many of us. If this, is, if this is what we do, whatever it is that we do, whatever we're worshiping, it becomes what we deify. Meaning what you are giving yourself over to in your emotions and your affections, you're, you're deifying, meaning you are making it God whether you know it or not, you're making it God. And therefore, that has become the object by which you will glorify and by which you will live for, and that is called idolatry. And idolatry looks like a couple different things, items. Consumerism, right? Consumerism is now the new American religion. It's the new American religion, right? Consumerism is just a behavior, but a worldview that tells us who we are. If this is your identity, then, then, then a good sign of that is brand names are vital to you. That's your idol. If brand names are vital to you, then that's your idol. Second, consumerism is often driven by a desire to, to gain status and prestige with other people in front of one's peers. We tend to believe that our social stature is defined in what we display before others and what we consume and entertain ourselves with. Why, isn't that the reason why we're so intrigued with the lifestyles and the rich and famous? So we consume their shows. We, can, we consume what they wear or what they do. We act and speak like them. We, we wear what they wear. We drive what they wear. We're driving. We live like they want to live, and we're going where they're going. Number three, products are not the supply value for their usefulness, but rather they play a central role in cultivation and the maintaining of our identity. Let me read that again. Products, meaning stuff, is not, are not supply-valued for their usefulness. Like, we don't just get things for their usefulness in our lives, but rather they are playing a central role in the cultivation and the maintaining of your identity. This, I, a simple test of that is, is, is buy your child. Remember, maybe if, you, if your children are grown up, buy your child something and then let them play with it for a while and then take it away and see how they react. They, they freak out. I was about to do it, but y'all heard enough of Lydia this morning. But that's what they do in our consumer culture, right? These are the goods that we consume. This is what we want. And this is what separates us, too. We judge people based upon what they wear, what they look like, what they drive, where they go on vacation, how they go on vacation, who they marry, how their children act, where their children go to school. We all were judging based upon these things. When stuff is your God and the object of your worship, guess what? It ends up owning you. It ends up owning you. And I, I put a little quote here. It may not translate too well with y'all, but I said, I said, just ask Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> That's the Hobbit in Lord of the Rings. That's prob- that, that, that might have been a mental note just for myself, but just a giggle there. But it... If the object of your God is the stuff that you own the things that you worship, guess it ends up owning you. So, the, so here's the deal. The problem is not the mall, right? It's not that we need to go burn down the mall. This is the, this is the problem, I think, with evangelicalism, is, is we see a problem and then we want to go like beat Starbucks up. Or we want to go,, you know, uh, you know, kick Apple or beat up Disney or something like that. Um, the problem is not the mall. The problem is not gap. The problem is not the money. Our problem is not Amazon.com. The problem is us. The problem is, is our heart. The items are okay, and they're good, and they're good gifts of God in times, but, and, and they're there for us to enjoy at times. But when your whole life is identified in things, you're guilty of idolatry. Trans, going to the next one, so that's consumerism stuff, items. Second one is duties. Duties. Duties become an idol to us. Chores, tasks, job requirements, homework, ministry and church. This is what James spoke about a couple weeks ago on Wednesday nights. Relationships. If this is the meaning of your identity, you're, you're wrapped up in the approval of man and only want to be seen by others, you doing stuff and doing things. If your identity is in these things, then guess what? You are going to live a life that's like running on a treadmill. Nothing wrong with running on a treadmill, but guess what? All you get is tired and you go nowhere. You do get some exercise, but you get tired and, and, and you go nowhere. If you're identifying the things you're living your life on, on a treadmill, you'll always be searching out to perform more, to do more, because you want to be the one who does more than anybody else to demonstrate your superiority. Problem is that someone's always going to run farther, and you'll never be able to keep up. And just like the person who did run farther and you run a little bit less, your identity is being found in the wrong places. You will hit the wall and you'll lose. Those are funny YouTube videos, by the way, if you look at treadmill fails. <laughs> That's dangerous creatures. So the problem, the problem, the problem once it is is, is, is this, and this is what the Bible teaches us in so many different places, is you are not what you do. You are not what you do. Duties do not define you. Rather, who you are in Christ helps us faithfully perform those duties. Who we are in Christ. Maybe it's others that's our idols, or maybe it's a combination of all, all the things, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's a combination of all of them, and I think all of us can dip into either one of these categories. We find our identity in, in, in the people that we run with, the people we, we run with and, and, and then the people that we run with we're constantly looking at our group and we're going to demonize the other groups that other people run with. And maybe it's the individuals that we're identifying with. Personal relationships. Personal relationships. Maybe it's a husband, wife. It could be even your own children. These, these relationships can be unhealthy if they are idols to you. It, it often explains, when, if there's an idol there, why we change our appearance and we change our behavior when we're around certain individuals. There's a form of idolatry there, and we want to impress people. Maybe it's an idol of, of, of independence upon people, we de, or we want to be away. We've, we've met those people who just like to, to not conform to anything and want to be completely independent of everything, or maybe it's a, an idol of dependence. You, you simply always need to imitate a relationship or always be in a relationship with someone or be in a certain type of relationship. Maybe it's longings. Maybe you have a, an idol of longings. And we all have longings. We all have desires. We all have wants, things that we want to achieve. Right. We all have things that we, we want to do, but, but when they become the source of our identity our life then becomes governed by those feelings and and about the future rather than the present. Meaning this, meaning meaning that the the truth of of who God is and how God is working in your life now don't matter in comparison to what you want in the future. And what God has designed all of us is to live in the now, to live for what we have now. It's not a sin to, to, to plan for the future, it's not a sin to set your joy, it, but it is a sin, I'm sorry, it is a sin to set your joy and identity on who you will be or have in tomorrow. Here's the thing. Many of us believe, many of us believe that God will love you more when you finally overcome that sin. Right? So think about that. There's something that, that maybe you've been uh, struggling with and dealing with forever, for maybe for years now, maybe months, and, and we just think that that maybe if I overcome this, God will love me a little bit more. Maybe show me a little bit of favor. Maybe win that Powerball kind of thing. Um, and, and here's the problem. The problem is, is, is yeah, God, God wants that sin to no longer be besetting. God, God desires for you to be holy and to be obedient. But the problem is, is what you want to be doesn't change how God feels about you now. God loves you now as much as He will love you in the future and as much as He has loved you in the past. Romans 5.10, for while we were enemies, He sent His Son to reconcile us and put His Son to death. So even at your best and even at your worst, God loves you the same. So that, that, that changes the longings there. There's another uh, idol, idol of suffering. I'll just run through this real quick. Uh, when we suffer, we can easily allow our hurt become our identity. This is, a, this is an idol by which I wanted to hold on to a couple months ago. That because I was suffering, and because I was hurting, at least thinking I was suffering and hurting, that that pain could become so overwhelming and all-consuming. Right? It, I wanted to identify with it. I wanted to be that. Per, like, be that. Even, even, even as painful as it was, and as hurtful as it was, I wanted to be that. Wanted to, to be that. But rather, but rather, we do not live free from suffering, right? This, these things are gonna happen. But rather, suffering not should lead us to, to live in it as in a form of idolatry or a form of identification, but it should lead us to identify with Jesus, who suffered more than anyone in history on our behalf. So I had to put that to death on tr- in the truth of, of that. So our idols getting exposed. Our idols will be exposed. Most of us are unaware when we live our lives where our our, our idols uh, will will come from. But most of the time, hardship and pain, anxieties and fears will take hold, panic, blame will will, will happen. And and when these things come up, our idols are exposed. And how you react will will, will show how how, how, how tight you're holding on to that idol. And unfortunately, when this happens, when these things are exposed like taking the toy from the child or taking something from a kid who wants something when they, you know it's best for them to take it away from them. Sometimes that individual, like ourselves at times, like I was at times, we, we lack the wisdom and the theological depth and even godly friends to point us to Christ. And therefore we just choose another idol instead of repenting as the church in Ephesus. So these idols can't bear the weight of our own lives. So we are to identify, as, as to identify with, with Christ and in Christ. And this is what the book of Ephesians is all about. is to reshape the identity of the church and being in Christ. Not to follow the things of the world, but to identify with Christ. The whole point of Paul's teaching to Ephesus is this. is who you are in Christ and who you are united together in Christ. That this is to be your identity. This is the very basic nature of who you are, is to be in Christ. Is to be in Christ. I spent many years of my own life, I spent many years of my life, most of my college years, when I actually started beginning to care about about Christianity and my faith. I spent many years of my Christian life trying to, trying to change my moral behavior. I heard sermon after sermon, time after time, moral conformity. Be like this. Do this. Read your Bible more. Pray more. Stop watching that. Don't do that. Don't talk this way. Go to these places at these particular times. Stand up at this time. Sit down at that time. I spent my, for years... Years trying to conform around this this certain moral, ethical behavior. And with by the way, with very little success. The only thing that I gained out of that time was one thing, deception. I learned how to deceive people. I learned how to make myself look Christian. But in my heart, I was struggling. And I learned how to push it back and deny it, right? That I had, I had idols that were deep in me. And I had no clue because all I kept on hearing was I saw people preaching and teaching telling me to get right, get better, do this, do that. And so I, so these guys then became these figures of perfection. That Why am I not achieving this? Why am I the one who's struggling with all these sins? Let me read you his quote, and I'll continue with that. It says this. It says, But God knows what you do, knows that what you do flows from who you are. As Christians, we live from our identity, not for our our identity. We are defined by who we are in Christ, not what we do or fail to do for Christ, But Christ defines who we are by who He is and what He has done for us, in us, and through us. Understanding this information is key to your transformation. And that's what I I realized, was was that was the key to my transformation, was Ben was trying to identify being a Christian instead of just reflecting in the fact of being in Christ. And you're like, those aren't the same things... Culturally, my Christianity was conformed about doing things. Being better. Stop talking this way. Stop watching those things. Stop doing those things and going to those places and indulging in those stuff and those things. Stop giving into that anger. And in that transformation, I, I began to see my identity being in Christ and being transformed solely by God's grace And that even in my faults and in my failures, God loves me just as much today as He did when Christ died on the cross. He wasn't looking for a better version of Ben. He was looking for a sanctified by Jesus' blood, Ben. And He purchased what I could not achieve, and He brought out what I could not gain in my own works. I'd like to say that I got saved when I was about 14, but I might have got saved when that really got me. When God's grace really gripped me. And it was not me. But when I begin to see that in Christ is living in the righteousness of Christ, not the righteousness of men, is when real freedom came. And when those idols begin to wash away and no longer bear the weight because upon the solid rock of living in Christ is what stood and so we don't want the starting place of, of finding our identity to be in you, that's where I thought it was found Is in me, the identity of me Ben, what Ben can do for Jesus the identity does not start with you But the best place, the only place for us to start building identity is in the person and work of Jesus Christ and in him alone. Another quote, knowing Jesus and being saved by him in faith is the key to your identity and to the defeat of your idolatry. It's not about you. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So we look toward the person of Jesus Christ in faith. We look toward him. Brother and sister in Christ, if you are not looking toward Jesus this morning, consider this by God's grace and God's kindness to lead you to repentance right now this morning, to repent and trust in Christ and lean on Him, to look toward Him, to no longer look toward your works, but look at what Christ has done. Marvel in His grace. Marvel in His mercy. Marvel in His accomplishment and what He has achieved in the cross. This is our redemption. And in being in Christ, as we will see as we walk through Ephesians, is the one and only thing that changes everything about us. And so I'm, I'm praying I'm praying this, this year and this time that we have together as we walk is that we will recognize, confess, we can constantly be confessing these things. We're constantly confessing. I'm constantly confessing of my sin. If your salvation looked like one thing 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and nothing has taken place since then, you might want to rethink if you're even a believer. And I mean that kindly. Kindly. Because repentance for a believer is ongoing, and it grows. Because as the Holy Spirit begins to work in a person's life, you begin bubbling up more and more is sin. And therefore, the believer repents and runs to Christ, runs to the cross. So I don't say that judgmentally. I say that kindly, and God, by God's grace, that you would repent of your sin and trust in Him. That salvation happens once, yes, absolutely, but salvation continues. Salvation continues daily. And so that we would embrace this singular identity of being in Christ, that you'll see victory over your idolatry, and by God's grace and the work of His Spirit, we would have faith and we would trust in Christ. And the result for all of us together, us, is that we will be a people who want to glorify God in all things, who desire to be empowered by the Word, the Scripture, to love one another, to forgive each other, to teach one another, to prepare for each other, to live by God's grace with each other, to reflect the the power of God's majesty and invest in each other, to the praise of God and Christ and His glorious grace, and to be holy and healthy people who want to ultimately, ultimately live for Christ in this community. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and the measure by which you have given to us that no longer we have to live for these weak, ineffectual idols that we so want to cling to, but to turn toward the Son of God. And help us, Father, to be, as the psalmist wrote, the deer that pants after that cool, crisp water the living water that satisfies. And we would identify together and grow together in Christ in such a way that you would be magnified here in this community and in this world and in this time as you build your church. Lord, we love you. We give you all the glory. May our repentance, may our repentance be fresh and new each day. And we may live for you in your glory. Help us now as we respond together. Amen.